0: Welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvement's author-in-the-room conference call. I will be your conference operator for today's call. Right now, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question-and-answer session, and instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time, please press star zero on your touchtone phone. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Dr. David Shute. Dr. Shute is the medical director and senior consultant with Greenfield Health System in Portland. Greenfield is an innovative medical practice whose mission is delivery of superior clinical quality and patient service and the spread of best practices through advocacy and teaching. Previously, Dr. Shute served as the medical director of Acumentra Health, the Oregon Quality Improvement Organization. There, Dr. Shute was responsible for oversight of all clinical activities and led the state's quality improvement activities. Dr. Shute, you may go ahead. Thank you,
1: Jerry. Again, my name is David Shute, and I will be your moderator for today's call. We are delighted that you could join us today. As you know, author in the room. Calls are designed to help translate new knowledge, what is published in recent JAMA articles, into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, with the next call being on Wednesday, July 16th. The article for that call will be uh, examining, excuse me a second, the offer for that call will be Uh, examining the uh, intersection between diabetes and depression. Please join us. Several organizations have made Author in the Room a regular part of their learning experience, and we certainly encourage everyone to do so. Today, our featured author is Dr. Wendy Berg, first author of the article, Combined Screening with Ultrasound and Mammography Versus Mammography Alone in Women at Elevated Risk for Breast Cancer published in the May 14, 2008 issue of JAMA. Dr. Wendy Berg is the study chair and principal investigator of the American College of Radiology Imaging Network Protocol 6666. Dr. Berg trained at John Hopkins University School of Medicine, where she received an M.D. and a Ph.D. in pharmacology in 1987, and she completed residency in diagnostic radiology in 1992. Dr. Berg was Professor of Radiology and Director of Breast Imaging at University of Maryland. She works with the American College of Radiology on appropriateness criteria for women's imaging and BIRADS ultrasound and mammography lexicons. Welcome, Dr. Berg.
2: Hi, David. It's great to be here. Thank
1: you for joining us. As a moderator, it's my job to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Berg's research with the goal of driving performance improvement based on this article. The purpose of Author in the Room is for you to hear directly from an author about the research findings that can improve patient care and clinical practice. Together, Dr. Berg and I will help you translate what is in her paper into challenges applicable to your practice. Here's how the hour will proceed. Dr. Berg will spend approximately 10 to 15 minutes summarizing her findings, then I will take a few moments to draw out some of the implications for real-world practice and set the stage for us to take your questions and comments. We want to stress how important your participation is in these calls. This is a great forum in which to get clarification on anything in the article itself by hearing directly from the lead author and to contemplate with others the significance of the findings and the steps you might take in using this information towards the improvement of patient care. Your participation, not just in terms of questions, but offering up your experience in this area will be quite helpful to the call. There are approximately 50 lines connected to the call today, generally with several individuals participating per line. Some members of the media may be present on today's call on a background-only basis. One other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites as streaming audio or podcasts. Complete details and instructions are available under the program section of IHI.org. Prior author in the room calls are also available on these sites. Now let's get started. Let me guess, again introduce Dr. Berg, who will provide an overview of her recent article. Dr. Berg.
2: Hi. Um, just by way of background, basically in the late 1990s and early 2000s, there were several articles coming out indicating that screening ultrasound could find additional early breast cancers that were not being seen on mammography and this was particularly true in women who had dense breast tissue. There remained a lot of skepticism, however, in the field of breast imaging uh, because each of these reports had come out from single centers, and while we were certainly convinced that individuals at those single centers could perform good quality screening breast ultrasound, it was not at all clear to the rest of us whether this was something that we could apply to our own practice, Um, This is particularly an issue with ultrasound because, as I'm sure most of you know, it is a real-time examination. It requires that the person performing the ultrasound examination recognize an abnormality while they're performing the scan and document it. It's not something that we can review later and hope to get additional information from. So there was a, a tremendous need to validate the prior work in this area, and One of the important things that we did was to standardize all of the technique um, as well as interpretive criteria for performing the examination. We actually had 21 different centers involved in this study, um, including sites in Toronto and Buenos Aires. We trained the investigators in the protocol and in the scanning technique and required each of them to actually successfully complete several tasks, including identifying very tiny lesions in a phantom that was created specifically for this trial. We had several interpretive skills tasks in ultrasound as well as mammography that they had to pass in order to be investigators in this protocol. Um, And having set that up, we then were able to enroll um, a total of 2,809 women to the study Um, Of whom, 2,637 actually completed uh, full 12 months of follow-up so that we had standard results. And within this study, each participant is getting both an ultrasound exam and a mammogram exam each year for three years. And the results that we reported in the May 14th issue of JAMA reflect the results from the first screen. We're going to have additional results coming out hopefully in the next year and a half or so, that will include the second and third screens as well. And actually at the end of this study, women who had had all three screens were invited at most of our centers to have an MRI examination after they'd had the ultrasound and mammogram for three years um, in an effort to try to sort out the potential additional role of screening MRI in this situation. And basically, we had the mammogram and ultrasound performed independently of each other, which was actually very important because there's been, again, a lot of concern in the past that there was bias introduced by enrolling women who had difficult mammograms, and perhaps the lesions were actually visible on the mammogram, but the person doing the study might not have wanted to acknowledge that, and they just went on to do the ultrasound directed to an area of vague abnormality. And so having each of these two tests performed separately and independently was actually a very important part of the validation process. And of those 2,637 women who enrolled in the study, we had 40 women who were diagnosed with breast cancer at the end of a year, or diagnosed with cancer. One of the cancers was actually a melanoma and probably um, will not be included in further analyses, but at this point was reported as an invasive cancer and therefore it was included. It was actually a false negative on both tests because it was metastatic nodes in the axilla um, and really we were not screening the axilla per se in this study. So of those cancers that were found, um, half of them were identified with mammography uh, or 20 patients were identified with cancer on mammography Uh, And another um, 12 patients were diagnosed with cancer as a result of the ultrasound screening. Um, So altogether, um, we had 32 women who were diagnosed with breast cancer that were seen on imaging. However, one of those cancers was actually initially seen on mammography and then dismissed as a result of the um, combination reading by a second radiologist and was not diagnosed until the patient presented with metastatic nodes. Um, but the overall combined sensitivity then of the two tests was 78%. 31 of the women were credited with having been seen on both on, on the combination of the two tests versus 50% um, on the mammography alone. And that was a significant increase in detection of cancers Um, And importantly, the types of cancers that we found with ultrasound were mostly small, invasive cancers that had not yet spread to axillary lymph nodes. And of course, these are exactly the types of cancers that we most need to be finding. All of the women in the study had at least heterogeneously dense breast tissue, and we do expect that mammography performs worse in that situation because cancers especially those that are not that do not have any calcifications in them, uh, those types of cancers can be missed due to overlying breast tissue that's similar in density. And the downside to all of this uh, is, of course, that there were substantial false positives. Anytime we do a screening test, we do find abnormalities that are not due to cancer but that do require additional workup or even biopsy. And in this study, we actually found that if you look at all the women who participated, um, about um, one in uh, sorry one in forty had a biopsy based on mammography that was not due to cancer. About one in ten of these women had a biopsy after the combination of ultrasound and mammography together that was not uh, due to cancer, and so that's a substantial risk of an unnecessary biopsy. And so the bottom line really is that uh, we do find that there is a benefit in terms of detecting early breast cancer when we add screening ultrasound to mammography, but the woman has to be informed of the risk of a false positive, especially false positive biopsy. Um, And for some women, that is too great a risk. They're not willing to take that risk, Uh, But if a woman is uh, aware of that and accepts that risk, then it certainly is a viable uh, method for screening uh, in terms of its performance characteristics. The other issue which we can certainly discuss is the fact that right now not every center has the expertise or the availability of trained personnel to offer this to all women who might benefit. And so we do have an issue there with uh, expanding our ability to offer this service. Um, there is a disincentive right now to facilities because the reimbursement actually doesn't cover the k- true costs of offering this test. And then the other issue that I'm sure we'll want to discuss more is the competing role with screening MRI, which has been recommended for some women who are at very high risk uh, for breast cancer. And MRI does appear to have better performance characteristics, it's less likely to have um, unnecessary biopsy than ultrasound, and it's also more likely to find uh, all the cancers that are present there uh, than is ultrasound. But it is much more of an ordeal for the patient and a much more expensive test. So those are the the basic issues that I'd like to uh, discuss with you today.
1: Well, great. Thank you very much, Dr. Berg, for that great summary, and thank you for your good work. Now we want to turn to discuss what the research really suggests about changes in clinical practice, that is to say, changes that clinicians and other healthcare professionals should consider uh, in view of the article. And so to me the challenge as a primary care physician, as an internist, is where do I begin, where does my practice begin if we want to begin to apply this information. And the, the first thought that really comes to mind, Dr. Berg, is, is can you help us understand a little bit how um, we would determine which, which women to recommend this for, you know, which women should we initiate the conversation about the screening with combined mammography and
0: ultrasound?
2: Right, and I think this is an area of a lot of discussion right now because even the guidelines that came out from the American Cancer Society last year for adding MRI to mammography on an annual basis they can be kind of confusing. And let me just go through those first because we would not uh, replace MRI with ultrasound in those women for whom it's been recommended um, that they have MRI. If you do an MRI in addition to mammography, you don't need to do screening ultrasound as well. You don't need all three. So if um, a woman has a known mutation in either BRCA1 or BRCA2 genes, Um, or is suspected to be a carrier because they have a first-degree relative, such as mother, sister, brother, father, um, with a a known mutation in those genes, then MRI should be offered to them in addition to annual mammography. Um, And we can talk more about the age to start all this, but the bottom line is that they would be recommended for MRI as well as mammography. And there is a large group Of intermediate risk women where it's a little more difficult um, to calculate and determine this just from their history. Uh, Women who have a lifetime risk of breast cancer of at least 20 to 25 percent by the various models that are used such as BRCA Pro, the Klaus model, um, those women would also be recommended for annual MRI in addition to mammography it's not so easy to recognize who fits into those categories um, just in an average practice. Um, We as radiologists actually collect a lot of the family history information. And if you do see a situation where there are multiple relatives, uh, especially if they're first-degree relatives, diagnosed under the age of 50 with breast cancer or with ovarian cancer as well as breast cancer, those are certainly women who would fall into the very high-risk category for whom MRI is recommended. But there are a lot of um, variations on that that are harder to just know by looking at the story. Um, And if there are multiple relatives with a history of breast cancer, those are women for whom genetic counseling may be appropriate um, to really go through the models in detail and calculate their absolute risk and then it does have additional implications some women would prefer to have mastectomy some women may be recommended even for chemo prevention uh, these days if they fall into these categories and of course there are potential insurance uh, ramifications if they're found to have a gene and it does have a, a gene mutation it does have a lot of implications so um Basically, at this point, the average practitioner wants to at least look at the family history, including breast and ovarian cancer history on both sides of the family. And if there is a, um, if there more than if there's more than one relative involved, then it probably is a situation where the patient should get some genetic counseling. We have a large category of, of a slightly lower risk, where the lifetime risk by these models would be in the. The 15 to 20 percent category, or women who have a personal history of breast cancer, where they're certainly at increased risk of developing a second cancer, but they're not quite clearly recommended for MRI yet. And also women who have prior atypical biopsy results, such as lobular carcinoma in situ or atypical ductal or lobular hyperplasia, for whom MRI may or may not be of benefit. And we actually, the vast majority of the participants in our trial fell into this uh, category of slightly lower risk, um, where MRI is not definitely of benefit. Um, It might be, but it might not be. And it's those women for whom we would currently recommend ultrasound screening, in addition to mammography, if it's available, and if the facility has the expertise to offer it. And... One of the issues um, that comes up with both tests but is particularly of concern for MRI screening is that not every facility that offers the examination has the ability to perform a biopsy if they find an abnormality on that modality. And breast MRI-guided biopsy in particular is not always available. I know Dr. Larry Bassett at UCLA has a paper coming out very shortly addressing this issue and found that, that as many as 29% of facilities that are where a fellow in our society of breast imaging is involved in the facility, that fully 29% do not offer MRI-guided biopsy, if they, even if they found a suspicious lesion on MRI. And that obviously presents its own set of problems. Um, and the patient basically is left to fend for herself to find a place to have the abnormality addressed and so we certainly would not recommend women have an MRI unless they can have it at a facility that offers the additional biopsy if needed. And the same would be true for ultrasound, but it's less likely that the facility would not offer ultrasound-guided biopsy. Um, Ultrasound biopsy is a very simple technique, and it is pretty widely available. Great.
1: Well, thank you, Dr. Berg. So on, on a very practical matter, Uh, As a primary care doctor, how do I know um, that my institution, say my local hospital, is able to do the combined screening, uh, ultrasound, and mammography, and to do it competently? How do I know that before I begin either referring patients or offering that to my patients?
2: Right. I mean, the simplest thing is obviously to have a discussion with the lead radiologist at the local facilities and ask them directly um, that question, I think, in general, facilities which have a subspecialization in breast imaging, at least, would have the qualifications to offer it. Um, we do have the materials available from our study. If the if the radiologist wishes to contact Akron, they can be made available if they're interested in just, you know, reassuring themselves that yes, they do interpret. Uh, ultrasound and mammography accurately and as accurately as the people in our study did. Um, Sometimes it's helpful just to boost confidence, if nothing else, and make sure that they feel like they're on the same page. Um, Certainly, we would encourage people who offer this technology or this technique to follow a similar protocol in terms of documenting normal areas of the breast and how they scan and all if they are going to expect similar results in their practice. But all of this is available online at the um, www.acrin.org website. The full can protocol you, is online. Can you spell it um,
1: Akron for Wendy, can you spell it Akron for us?
2: Yes, sorry, it's
1: A-C-R-I-N
2: dot O-R-G.
1: Great. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, Jerry, I want to check in now and see uh, if we have any uh, callers in there. I actually want you to go ahead and uh, open up the line for callers, please.
0: Thank you. For those of you who have a question, please press star 1 on your touchtone phone and your question will be answered in the order that it is received. If you are using a speakerphone, you must pick up your handset before pressing star 1 to register for a question.
1: Great. And I want to add, um, your your questions can certainly include uh, anything related to the article. Uh, how to use the article to make improvements, or if you have any questions for Dr. Berg about any other related issues regarding screening, screening mammography, that would be fine. In addition, we're also very interested in how any of you may have already applied this knowledge in your practice or systems that you are developing to increase really the reliability with which you recommend appropriate uh, screening for breast cancer in your patients. Uh, Jerry, do we have any callers in the queue at this time?
0: We do have one caller in the queue from Kings County Hospital. Please proceed with your question.
3: Yes, um, I actually have two questions. First question is, um, I just want to understand the criteria for determining who is high risk. Um, there's some certain obvious criteria with the BRCA genes and the patients with previous history of cancer, but are patients with simple, dense breasts, in that same category and do all of them qualify for screening ultrasound and or screening MRI? That was my first question. Uh, you may want to answer to that first.
2: Yeah, sure. go ahead and take, take these one at a time, thank you. Yeah, yeah. that's an excellent question. And um, recent papers actually would suggest that having extremely dense breasts uh, and even moderately dense or heterogeneously dense, is the term we use, breast tissue, that both of those are in and of themselves Uh, risk factors for developing breast cancer as well as factors that limit our ability to see the cancer on mammography. So it's a double whammy, if you will. And in the guidelines from the American Cancer Society for MRI screening, women with dense breasts are in this unknown territory as to whether MRI is of value enough to justify its use or not. Um, And I would say a similar statement applies to ultrasound. I mean, I think we know that it can help, but right now we really cannot afford to offer it to every woman with dense breast tissue. Um, There's just simply too few facilities that can offer this service. Um, So right now the answer is yes, it's a value, I, I would say, based on both prior and current literature in the ultrasound field certainly. Um, but it's not something that is available or practical to offer to every woman with dense breasts. If we look at just women, um, and just to tell you, give you an idea of how common it is to have dense breast tissue, approximately half of women under age 50 have at least heterogeneously dense, if not extremely dense breasts, and at least a third of women still over age 50 have dense breast tissue. So we're talking about a huge percentage of the screening population who might benefit from additional testing, but it's, again, not practical at this time to offer it to all of those. Um, and in our own practice, we we pretty much do recommend it for those women who fall into the latter category of having extremely dense breasts because we know that the denser the breast, the more limited the mammogram is, uh, and the greater the risk of, of developing breast cancer appears to be. Um, and then we also do recommend it if the woman has additional risk factors and at least heterogeneously dense breasts. Um, but again, we just don't have the capacity to offer it to every potential woman who might benefit. And, and one thing I didn't mention, but I do want to make sure I do say, is that not every um, insurance carrier will cover this. It certainly does in our area, so I tend to forget about this. But uh, in New York City, it's covered, and in Connecticut, it's covered, but. Uh, it is something that women would need to check with their insurance carrier as well to make sure that they would cover a screening ultrasound. Great, thank. you.
1: And did you have a follow-up question as well?
3: Um, well, yes, too. Now, <laughs> um, if if in fact, could my all right? How do I put this? Could anyone be faulted medical legally for not? at least suggesting that screening ultrasound may be helpful in a report. Um, For dense breasts, um, that's one part of it. And then the second part is if you do do screening ultrasound on everyone with dense breasts, isn't it a problem because you may find many, many hypoechoic structures on ultrasound which don't really look suspicious, but then you may need to follow them or biopsy them. So you're sort of opening up a can of worms. What's your opinion about that?
2: Well, as, as I mentioned, and you may not have been on at the very beginning, the risk of false positives is substantial with ultrasound, and we found that about 1 in 10 women who had a combination of ultrasound and mammography could end up with a biopsy for something that was not cancer. And so if you are going to offer it or recommend it, then certainly the woman needs to be informed of that risk before she starts this process. Um, I am hopeful, as with any other test that's ever been uh, done in breast imaging, that with subsequent screening rounds that we would expect the false positive rate to decrease. Um, We don't know that yet, or I don't know that yet. The data hasn't been made available to me yet from the additional screening rounds these women had at 12 months and 24 months. Um, But we would expect that that chance of having an unnecessary biopsy should drop simply because we know where a variety of uh, lesions already are in the breast. And we did standardize the criteria for interpretation so that at least many of the complicated cysts and fibroadenomas do not need to be biopsied if one follows the same criteria that we used for this study. But it is still a substantial risk, as you mentioned. Um, So to answer that question, Uh, It is a can of worms in a sense, but it's a can that most women, in my experience, would prefer to open given the chance of finding an early breast cancer uh, and given that the biopsy is a very minor procedure. Um, As far as medical legal implications of all of this, at this time, because there simply isn't the capacity to offer it to every woman, uh, it, it does not by any criteria uh, meet that this is standard of care that we have to um, offer it because we simply can't. We cannot offer it to more than half of the women um, who would even benefit right now. So it, it cannot be faulted if you don't recommend it at this time, but it is certainly something that if it's possible to offer it and if the woman is willing to accept the risks of an unnecessary biopsy, and it we do now have scientific validation that it does work and it does find the types of cancers that we want to be finding.
1: Great. Thank you, Dr. Berg. Did you have one more follow-up question?
2: Uh, no,
3: I'm good, thanks.
1: Great. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your call. Jerry, uh, next question, please.
0: Yes, we have several more questions. The next question comes from IBC. Please proceed with your question.
3: Yes, hi, thank you. You sort of addressed part of the question. I was wondering if there was any um, feedback or qualitative data from the participants who had the false positives since that is um, something that is a concern and as you had alluded to, you thought that maybe it wouldn't be as bad since it could alleviate another problem and these are high risk women, but I didn't know if that was actually formally uh, studied.
2: Um, yeah, that's a very good question, actually, and we have been formally studying that um, in a subset of our population in a study. Um, Dr. Mark Schleinitz at Brown University, um, together with his research assistant, Dina DiPaolo, have been looking at that very issue. They actually conducted telephone surveys um, with various quality-of-life instruments, and I don't pretend to be an expert on their methods, per se, but they did um, assess how uh, much, um, whatever, they use the term disutility, but it's basically time spent worrying about the results and waiting for results and how bad that was for ultrasound relative to mammography. And then they also were able to ask for a subset of the patients who had MRI at the very end of the whole study and compare across these different methods as well as looking at um, women who had procedures prompted by the various methods Um, And some of that I have seen, and the gist of it is that for most women, it's not a major uh, ordeal, but there are some women for whom it is a tremendous stress. And so there's a very long tail to the distribution if we look at these issues. Um, So women, again, need to be part of the process to make the decision that this is something they they want to have or not, um, we found that ultrasound was actually better tolerated than mammography, which is probably not shocking because we don 't require compression of the breast it does not it 's not painful to the woman to have an ultrasound exam performed um, and MRI was actually quite an ordeal uh, for the patients. We have also looked at um, how many people chose to participate in the MRI component of our study and we are looking at the reasons they didn't want to have the MRI, but we actually only had uh, about 60% of women who were eligible to have an MRI at the end of our study, even at no net cost to the patient themselves. Only 60% were willing to have the MRI performed. It's not a test that's very well accepted um, across the general population, let alone even our highly motivated, high-risk population who were in our study. Um, so I think that is an issue for just general practice and um, screening policies in general that we may find that a lot of women don't want to have an MRI examination, and therefore the ultrasound does provide an alternative, while it might not be quite as good from some standardized criteria, it certainly is better than not doing uh, anything in addition to mammography. Um So I think that pretty much answers it, but with the biopsies, the biopsy was still an ordeal regardless of what method prompted it. Um, And, again, that's something that the woman needs to be aware of that risk up front.
1: Great. Thank you, you, Dr. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Jerry, next caller, please.
0: Our next question comes from Midwestern Regional Medical Center. Please proceed with your question.
4: Hello. Um, In your population discussion, you say that women who had had imaging-guided interventional procedures or MRI within 12 months were excluded from the study. Would that, if we chose to do screening ultrasound along with mammogram, would we want to incorporate a recent MRI into our protocol of reasons why we wouldn't do a screening ultrasound?
2: That's correct. If the woman is having both screening mammography and screening MRI, we do not recommend that ultrasound be done for screening as well. Um, there's, it's been looked at in some of the studies where they had women with a known gene mutation in BRCA1 or BRCA2, um, and there was virtually no, I think there were only two cancers that were seen only on ultrasound across the various studies that were done uh, where all three tests had been performed. So it's not impossible that it would help, but the likelihood is extremely low, and it's really not considered um, you know, appropriate to do screening ultrasound as well as screening MRI in addition to mammography. It is certainly the case that we may end up doing an ultrasound directed to something that's seen on the MRI, but it is not something that we would recommend for screening in those women who are, are having an MRI.
1: Was your question about doing those concurrently or women that had had
2: MRIs in the past?
4: My question is more about MRIs done in
2: the past. Well, Maybe I mean, the, there, are various ways, yeah, there are various ways to do the MRI. I mean, some some centers do the MRI both uh, and and the mammogram at the same time. Other centers choose to do the mammogram on an alternating six-month schedule with MRI. But again, if the MRI is being done for screening and has looked at both breasts within the last year, uh, then we would not recommend that they have a screening ultrasound unless the patient has said, look, I, know, I don't want to ever have an MRI again, um, And in which case then you could consider switching over to screening ultrasound, uh, if you will. But you would not do... Ultrasound as well as MRI for screening, and when we say screening in this country, we mean every year. Okay,
4: thank you, doctor. Mm-hmm. What if, can I ask one more question?
2: Yeah, sure, go right ahead.
4: Um, doctor, what about the the time factor? I saw that you um, were timing because they always think that. Um, screening ultrasounds, they don't usually do because of the time factor for the technologist as well as as well as well the radiologist. I know some technology going to the RSNA, you know, they've tried to develop some type of screening tool for ultrasound, but nothing really has, you know, come out ahead. So I was wondering what you know about that and would right. there any, be t- some kind of technology that would re- replace just a technologist sitting there and scanning the whole breath?
2: Right. No, these are very important questions, and I guess my answer has two parts to it. The first is that I think a lot of people were waiting for these results to see where things fell um, and were hesitant to uh, proceed with either training technologists or uh, offering the service until they at least knew these results. So I'm hopeful that this will stimulate additional work in this area to increase the availability of the test as it stands right now. Um, but you're right; it is a test that is labor intensive. Um, you know, our our time estimate was 20 minutes for a bilateral examination, and that's quite a lot of technologist or radiologist time. Um, it probably was a little bit longer than it needed to be because we had such strict requirements for documenting everything, um, but still it is an issue, and it's not something, you know, with mammography as radiologists we can read, I, I think it's more on the order of 30 mammograms in an hour, not the 50 that were suggested in the editorial, um, but in that ballpark. And with screening ultrasound, if we're doing the test, you know, at most we're talking about three maybe four exams an hour that we could perform and interpret. Or if our technologist is performing them, then the technologist is limited to uh, three or four an hour at present. Um, And mammography, she can probably do at least five or six in an hour, if not more, with digital mammography. So it is an issue at this time at some level, although we do have our technologists performing this test. We have specialized uh, breast ultrasound technologists, and they do a very nice job. And on average, most of the exams are completed in 10 minutes with a normal exam. Uh, There are those that take much longer, and that's where the um, averages get distorted. Um, As to the automated devices, certainly there is an appeal to that because then we would be presented with a standard set of images that includes every potential area of interest um, rather than relying on the technologist to see an abnormality while they're scanning. Um, I haven't personally worked with those devices, but I'm certainly familiar with many who are working on evaluating those devices. And I've spoken with the companies uh, multiple times over the years. And I I think they're not really ready for um, prime time right now. But I think, again, These results will stimulate improvements in that area. Um, Certainly, they will increase, doing it that way would increase the cost of offering the test, and that's problematic as well. Anytime we talk about screening, um, there would be the ability to bill for three dimensional reconstructions, for example, um, but the cost of the test would go up as well. And that's, you know, there's a double edged sword anytime we talk about uh, more expensive technology. It helps the facility, but it doesn't help the uh, overall cost of offering the test to the public in general. Um, And right now, the biggest limitation has just been that there's a high recall rate from these automated devices where the detail that you get from the images is not quite as good as it is with uh, existing technologies for most of them, and you do need to call the patient back and look at areas a second time, and that presents problems, uh, obviously, just as it does with mammography. Um, it may be, I know there's one uh, individual, Kevin Kelly, who's working on a device that uses the same transducer that we use for our standard ultrasound of the breast and just automates it with a motorized arm, and he has presented um, verbally very good results at RSNA and other places, but again, haven't used it and haven't you know, seen enough to be sure um, and I think anything that we would think about in those lines would need to have, you know, multi-center validation, and I know he's working on that right now, but I think we have to stay tuned.
1: <laughs> Thanks, Doctor. Great. Thank you very much. Jerry, do we have another, question, another caller in the queue?
0: Yes, our, our next question comes from the Breast Cancer Coalition. Please proceed with your question.
4: Hi. Uh, Like many advocates, I'm concerned about uh, the increase in false positives uh, causing more biopsies and uh, therefore causing stress for the patient, possible formation of uh, scar tissue with a surgical biopsy, uh, the cost to the healthcare system as a whole, and of course uh, the copay cost uh, for the patient. So I'd like to know uh, what efforts, if any, are being made uh, to decrease the, the false positives.
2: Well, again, it's an important area of research for us at this time, and we will have more to report on that. Again, I think it's likely to decrease with subsequent rounds of screening, as has been seen with MRI, and as certainly is seen with mammography, just because you already know about the abnormality that is present, and you don't need to then pursue it further. Um, As to scar, I can answer that right now because it is very unlikely that a woman would have an unnecessary surgical biopsy from the ultrasound screening. Uh, The biopsies that are done should be done as a core needle biopsy uh, approach, and that's a very um, simple technique, albeit it uses needles, and it certainly does cause stress, although I will also say that for every patient I've ever biopsied with possible, very rare exception, when we're finished, they're like, "What was I worried about?" That was nothing. Um, I don't want to diminish the stress that they've gone through until that point, but it is not a major procedure, nor does it cause scarring in the vast majority of situations. And rarely you can find a little track, but this is just not an issue with ultrasound guided core biopsy in general. Um, I think one of there are, there are several potential ways to improve on this um, that are in development. Right now, there are several companies who are working on a technology called elastography, which may decrease the um, need to biopsy a lesion if it has a particular appearance on that technique. And that technique is done at the time of the ultrasound with the same machine, and it looks at the softness or hardness of the lesion. It provides additional information that we can't get from just the standard ultrasound image and it probably will help with things like complicated cysts which are common Uh, ruptured cysts are also common and can look very suspicious Um, so I think that we will see an improvement um, due to using elastography but again that's something that's excuse me very early um, in its development and implementation Um, there are ongoing trials in Europe and the United States looking at that and the results are encouraging but we're not We're not quite there yet.
4: Uh, Could I just ask, uh, what is the uh, availability of the core needle biopsy across the country? Is that, uh, in your opinion, fairly readily available to most patients?
2: Um, It is fairly readily available to most patients. Every now and then I I will get an email from a patient from another part of the country and, and she'll tell me about having had you know, having an abnormality on imaging and then being sent directly to a surgeon for biopsy and a, and having a surgical biopsy, that is very unusual today. Um, and it should be even more unusual than it is. I think there are some surgeons who will proceed to operate even when core biopsy both can and should be performed instead as a first step. And there are various reasons for that that are mostly probably political and financial um, rather than medically motivated. Um, the performance of a core needle biopsy is at least as good as a surgical biopsy in terms of outcome, and it is a very simple technique that is very widely available. Um, you know, I think there are some small pockets of the country where it's less available, but that's very uncommon at this point. And anything that we all can do to push that to encourage that biopsies be done as a core needle biopsy first uh, should should happen. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much.
1: And a follow-on question for me, is that the case in all findings, um, that a core needle biopsy should be done first?
2: It is. Um, there are a few situations where fine needle aspiration might be done, which is even a skinnier needle, um, if a lesion looks like it might possibly be a cyst with thicker fluid in it. As opposed to a solid lesion. Um, But basically, a needle procedure as opposed to a surgical procedure. If there's a lesion we can see on imaging, then we should be doing this as an image guided needle biopsy first. Um, There are very few, and especially with ultrasound, extremely few lesions where we get an atypical result and a surgical biopsy would then follow, Um, but that is uncommon with ultrasound findings. And um, that would be true of of any image-guided biopsy of any kind. Um, And the only time when we really don't do an image-guided biopsy is if there's nothing on imaging for us to see. So there are some situations where a patient has a palpable finding, and despite various different techniques that have been used, including mammography and ultrasound, we may not see something that looks concerning. And we're really still concerned about the clinical feel of this lesion those are the few situations where a lesion should be directly um, biopsied by a surgeon um, as a surgical biopsy. And I will also mention a lot of surgeons are actually doing their own image-guided biopsies. And, you know, their expertise will vary at this, but some are extremely good and certainly as good as radiologists at doing an ultrasound-guided biopsy. Um, it, it just varies, again, with geography and, um, you know, the, the local area will will drive some of these situations.
1: Great. Thank you very much. Jerry, uh, next caller,
0: please. Okay. We have several more. Our next question comes from Beck Medical Center. Please proceed with your question.
1: Uh, I have uh, two questions. Uh, first, a general question. Um, currently, as the technology evolves very clearly with MRI, for example, uh, presumably, uh, how do you project it in terms of potentially replacing mammography. Secondly, could you just mention a little bit about the use of uh, PET MRI, MRA, and PET CT as potential modalities uh, for both screening and, uh, and, and uh, diagnostic work?
2: Um, so I just want to make sure I have the question correct. Um, you asked about MRI replacing mammography. Is as, that cor- as the technology continues to evolve to become to right, the smaller PET-CT scale and PET- better. Right. So, um, you know, I think it's going to be very hard for us to replace mammography for the simple reason that we have results of randomized controlled trials that show a mortality reduction in breast cancer when we do screening mammography. And um, I think it's unlikely, although there are those who would certainly w- want to see it, I think it's going to be very hard for us to do randomized controlled trials with other screening technologies looking at mortality as an endpoint because it has such a long horizon to get those results. The technology changes uh, during that time and it's extremely expensive to conduct those trials. Um, Further, we know that the size of cancers, if we can find small breast cancers that haven't yet spread to lymph nodes, that that's the ball game. I mean, a cancer doesn't really care how it was detected. We know the natural history of the vast majority of cancers, especially invasive cancers. We can argue a little bit more about ductal carcinoma in situ, but I think it's unrealistic that to talk about getting away from doing mammography um, at, at, at this point. I mean, I suppose it could change in the future, but it, until we can get all of the cancers that are found on mammography with another modality, um, it it's just not going to go away. And right now, with a very good technique and MRI We can see about 78% of the total cancers that are present, um, but there's still, uh, you know, close to 30% of the cancers that are seen only on on mammography in many of the studies. Um, And again, I think you're just not going to get away from doing mammography as well. Um, MRI has a lot of promise, but again, I'm not sure it's going to be that well tolerated from all patients, uh, and it is very costly. That will certainly improve, but it's not going to ever be that cheap if we have to inject contrast. The the scanners are very expensive as well. Um, And actually interpreting MRI and doing MRI biopsies is not trivial at all right now. So a lot of these things are going to have to change a lot for it to be even more widely available than just the extremely high-risk patients right now. As to PET and PET-CT, I'm actually working, and I should disclose, I work with a company called Naviscan that has a dedicated high-resolution PET imaging device for breast imaging. Um, And we are in the middle of trials comparing it to MRI. Um, It certainly does a lot better than whole-body PET or PET-CT, but there are some cancers that are still not able to be seen with this. And any of the current techniques with PET or PET-CT, for that matter, Require the patient to be fasting for at least four, if not six, hours because we use radioactive sugar to see cancers. And you know, I think from a practical standpoint, both the radiation dose, which is comparable to a CT, let alone a, if it's done as a PET CT, and also the fasting, um, those really preclude this from being something that we could we could even consider for screening at this time. Um, those, the, the uses of PET and PET-CT are really, at this point, limited to patients who have a known diagnosis of cancer where we're looking at um, the extent of disease uh, for local staging, if not systemic staging, and also possible recurrent disease and also monitoring response to treatment if they're given primary chemotherapy before surgery. But um, I think that unless we find better tracers that could be used much more simply um, without the fasting and and with lower radiation dose, I think that there's a lot that has to change to make that even potentially something to talk about for screening.
1: Great. Thank you very much. Jerry, I think we've got time for one more short question. Next caller, please.
0: Okay. Our, Our next question comes from the BC Women's Hospital. Please proceed with your question.
4: Hi, Wendy. Um, I have two quick comments. One is about stress associated with needle biopsies. When we offer screening ultrasound to high-risk women, often there's more stress if we don't do a biopsy than if we do do a biopsy. And I completely agree with Dr. Burke's comment that uh, the women universally say afterwards that the the needle biopsy itself was no big deal. So when we find a lesion in a woman who's high-risk, often it's less stressful to just do the biopsy and she has her definitive answer And the other comment I wanted to make, uh, which uh, Dr. Berg alluded to when she was talking about MRI, is that we do uh, recommend uh, that whenever possible, women who want to have screening ultrasound alternate at six-month intervals with their annual screening mammogram. So that way they're having each test once a year, but um, they're having a screening test every six months. And unless they require great uh, distances of travel to come, it's best if you can split them up that way.
1: Great. Thank you for your comments. Dr. Berg, anything to add on those last two comments?
2: Uh, No, I appreciate it. I think that was Dr. Gordon, Paula Gordon, if I recognize the voice. Um, And, you know, I think the issue of timing the screening to every six months versus at the same time, it's a matter of choice. I know there's a forum on the Society of Breast Imaging page right now asking about this for MRI, and it's about half and half in terms of what facilities are recommending and doing Um, There is certainly a a peace of mind, if you will, for the patient to have her breast looked at every six months. Um, There is a downside for us as breast imagers because we often will find an abnormality and then end up doing or needing the other test to finish the story, if you will. So it becomes a little less efficient for us uh, as a facility to do it that way. Um, and, And at this point, it's not clear. It may be beneficial in terms of finding cancers even earlier, on average, but we really don't know that. So I think it's it's not wrong to do them at the same time, although there is at least a potential theoretical reason to separate them by six months. And again, there is a convenience issue for the patient as well as to, to some extent for the facility and then the callback issues. Um, but otherwise, I completely agree, and I, I've really enjoyed this discussion.
1: Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Berg. And that is all the time we have for questions. It's been a wonderful discussion of the issues brought out by your article. Uh, And, Dr. Berg, in just one minute, do you have any last closing thoughts or comments you'd like to leave us with?
2: Well, again, I think um, there's a lot to still sort out, and I'm hoping that these guidelines will become more clear both for MRI and for ultrasound over the ensuing few years. I would stay tuned, (laughs) and we know we're going to have more results from this trial in a year or two.
1: Great. I'd like to thank you again, Dr. Berg, for your participation in the call today and for the enlightening discussion. As a reminder, Author in the Room is a monthly program that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Our next discussion will take place on July 16, 2008. Our featured guest will be Sherita Hill-Golden, and we will be discussing her article, Examining a Bidirectional Association Between Depressive Symptoms and Diabetes. Sponsored by both the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, Author in the Room is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate the change in care that will improve clinical outcomes. Thanks again to all of you for being part of Author in the Room and have a good day.
0: And this concludes today's Author in the Room conference call. We thank you for your attendance. You may now disconnect.